Welcome to the Proper Lookout Podcast, published by the Statutory Insurance Group of McCabe Kerwood. In this series, our CTP experts will discuss a range of topics, sharing their thoughts on an industry trend or an intriguing legal issue, explaining the intricacies of an important case, and hopefully imparting some of the knowledge that they have gained. Hello, everyone. Chad Farrar here from the Statutory Insurance Group, McCabe Kerwood. I'm joined today by Paul Woolahan, Special Counsel. Paul, this is our first uh, podcast together, isn't it? Sure is, Chad. Glad to be here with you. And today we're going to be covering a slightly different topic, common misconceptions and myths surrounding insurers and their legal representatives. Mm, yes, lots of misconceptions around that. It, it's interesting, though, because I've worked on both sides, so to speak, and that's given me a unique perspective. You know, everyone is usually working toward a common objective. They just don't know it. So what you're saying is that you've worked for both sides now. Isn't that a song by Joni Mitchell? I love that song. <laughs> the funniest thing about that is uh, our audience, probably most of them probably weren't born when that was written. I think it was in 1967, but we move on. I had a similar experience to you. I acted for plaintiffs back in the 80s and 90s, and more recently as a cars assessor for about 10 years, had the opportunity to observe both sides from a neutral and hopefully impartial standpoint. You get to know the solicitors and barristers appearing before you and the different personalities and styles they bring to an assessment conference. But at the end of the day, you treat the parties and their representatives with respect. You allow each argument to be presented carefully and you weigh the respective positions against the evidence. And in our day-to-day practices and in our dealings with claimants representatives, you do the same thing. And this will mostly achieve a result that both sides are content with. Mm, yeah, I, I agree. And I have to say a lot of people who have not had um, experience in insurance generally have it all wrong about what we actually do. Uh, you know, I ran into an old colleague the other day, Paul, uh, while I was grabbing lunch in the city, and I'd worked with her at a, quote, plaintiff firm a few years back, and she's an excellent solicitor. She sees me and she jokingly says, you know, um, how's the dark side? Are you sleeping well at night? You know, I mean, you know what they say about about jokes, you know, behind every joke, there's an element of truth there. And um, going back to what I think you're saying, Joni Mitchell, one of the lines in that song but now all friends are acting strange and they shake their heads and they say that I've changed. Uh, well, something's lost and something's gained in living every day. <laughs> and what, what you were saying before about people always referring to the dark side, yeah. it gets a little bit boring, but uh, uh, do you turn into Darth Vader? I don't know. I don't, you know, I should probably sing the, uh, the Star Wars thing every time I say On a serious note, though, I I have had the pleasure of representing our excellent insurer clients um, at McCabe Kerwood now for over two years. And I must say there really is no great big conspiracy to profit at the expense of deserving claimants. Our work, firstly and foremostly, as as you've pointed out earlier, Paul, involves assessing the merits of each claim and advising our clients accordingly. I mean, that's it. There's no more, there's no less, that's what we do. And if the evidence is there and it is supported by the law, then we will value the claim accordingly. Would you agree with that assessment? I do, yes. I think one thing that's lost on people is that as insurers, our clients have hundreds and hundreds of files and the claimants might be one claim in their life. And there's a, there's a different perspective there. Our role is to understand our client's strategy for a particular claim, to gather the evidence to support that strategy and to present it in its best light. At the same time, being mindful that a claimant also has a strategy and the evidence to support it to a greater or lesser extent. Mm. 
Okay, let's get into a more of a, a philosophical realm here, which is, <laughs> trust me to make things complicated, but um, let's apply a hypothetical scenario where a solicitor is acting for claimants, but also in some kind of alternate universe, he or she is acting for insurers. And in that alternate universe, let's take this view that that solicitor is defending the very same claims brought by his own clients in the original universe. Now, my question is, and I was thinking about this the other day, they're the things that keep me up at night, (laughs) (laughs) who has greater power and control to better the lives of those deserving claimants? Is it the ethical solicitor? Uh, Of course, we assume the solicitor is ethical and wants to do the right thing. Is it the ethical solicitor acting for the claimants or is it his alter ego ethical solicitor acting for the insurer? That's a tricky one. That sounds a bit Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader to me. (laughs) I'm really going to sit on the fence a bit here and suggest that both sides being represented by competent ethical solicitors will be pleased with most outcomes. Mm, mm. One of the things that I kind of, that I came across in my mind the other day, and it was kind of a bit of a revelation. I come from a background of, of acting for plaintiffs and claimants. And I was always under the impression that the, you know, without the claimant solicitor or the plaintiff solicitor, nothing happens on the claim. And the claimant is effectively uh, without redress and that the power rests with the claimants or plaintiff solicitor. And over the past couple of years, it's dawned on me that there is a lot more, I guess, power and responsibility that rests with the insurer's solicitor in the sense that if you want to do the right thing on this side of the fence and you want to act ethically and your client is reasonable and all the variables are aligned, you in fact have the power to better the lives of deserving claimants to a greater extent and in a shorter period of time than you do acting for claimants, which is something that, you know, looking at that shift in the paradigm is, I, I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, I think what, in my experience, and I'm doing this a long time ago, was nothing really happened unless the plaintiffs moved along. So mm. there was no proactive strategy on, in the insurer's side, but that's now become a very central focus so you'll have insurers are lodging cars applications not Mm. waiting for things to happen Mm. and uh, moving claims along to conclusion because the shorter a claim is alive the better for everybody oh look i I agree yeah i agree and and just to make it clear i'm not saying the solicitors acting for claimants have no power and control over the outcome of the client's cases whatsoever quite the contrary but sometimes i feel that their energy is better spent you know, rather than, you know, attacking the integrity of, of the corporate world and, and insurers and what we do here, their energy is better spent focusing on the things that are actually within their control. And, and that applies to us as well. And I'd like to share with our listeners sort of a bit of a magic formula that I used in the past to achieve good results commercially and legally for claimants that I acted for. And now having changed sides, I can see why in retrospect it worked. So to help us help you, if you're a claimant or if you act for claimants, I think our friends on the other side, Paul, should follow these simple basic rules in my humble view. And what's crazy is that, you know, as I said earlier, they equally apply to us. So people who have listened to my podcast in the past know that I love checklists and I love <laughs> I love lists in general. But I've got um, eight items here that you and I were able to come up with earlier. So we'll start with number one which was nice and short, pick your battles. What do you think of that? Very important. I think uh, that applies to both sides. I think from an insurance perspective, picking your battles is very important. Pick the right case to defend, but pick the right case to settle and settle early. I mm. mean, we, we all know about 
deserving claimants, people who might have mitigated uphill and downdale, elderly people. Mm. People mm. often say nurses are, are very deserving. So I think you pick your battle in terms of the, the claimant you're dealing with or the plaintiff you're dealing with and, and the issues you're dealing with as well. Um, yeah. And if you're acting for claimants, can I add, picking your battles also involves filtering through the type of claimants that you're willing to act for and being quite selective with the cases that you take on as well. Because I think the the bargaining power really rests with the the claimant who, who has a valid claim, which is important from the outset. Number two, understanding what your client is alleging from the outset and in minute detail. How many times have we come across these vague statements that um, don't really tell us what is actually being alleged or, you know, I, I'm sure you can agree with me on, on that. Oh, one. certainly. It's a real problem. You, you often get a vague something will be provided or mm. tell you later on uh, or there'll be a claim for care but it'll be detailed later on. So I think the earlier the particulars can be provided in, in detail, it's, a, it's, it's obvious that it, it, it assists both parties. Absolutely. The more we know, the more we can do. And that also goes for number three, which is investigate the facts impartially. And I say impartially because I think whether you're acting for an insurer or acting for a claimant, the facts are the facts and, and ultimately... Um, any solicitor's overriding duties to the court. And so we want to make sure that whatever it is that we uncover is not necessarily to back up any version of the event. It's it's um, to back up the truth, if I can put it that way, and which is where the factual investigation process becomes very critical. And from what I've found, you know, interestingly, insurers apply it all the time. Claimant solicitors don't mm. for some reason. But, uh, you know, uh, just food for thought uh, in that regard. Number four, we had plead your case with accuracy and particularise your pleadings even better. What do you think of that one? Yeah, well, that that follows on from uh, number two, just providing particulars, but it's essential that one party presents the case so the other party knows what they're meeting and Mm. that that then plans your strategy, what reports you'll need, what other records you'll need. Uh, It's obviously very important and uh, accuracy speaks for itself. Yeah, and I've had situations, and I'm sure you can relate to this where a request for particulars is made and the response restates the question. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I think that is not helpful at all. The mentality of, you know, short, sharp, no, yes, um, keep it vague and ambush by trial, those days are long gone, I think, and, you know, we need to evolve past that. And same goes for us if we're pleading a defence. I think we need to be quite accurate about that. I think if we're asked particulars about a defence, we need to be quite accurate about that. And certainly we, we strive to do our best in that regard. Number five, make sure the client understands how the likely result is going to be calculated. And we're talking about damages here in our line of work so that their expectations are realistic from the outset. Well, that's very important. And obviously from an in- insurance perspective, we have to provide estimates. We have to review estimates, subject of material coming in, and, and th- that's extremely important to uh, understand. And, and the bigger picture is the the insurers have uh, reporting responsibilities for their estimates over thousands of claims. So uh, it's a mm. very important issue, certainly. And and I think if you're acting for claimants, and I've had this, I was in this position in the past where if a claimant doesn't understand how from a scientific point of view, you are calculating what they're entitled to, they may become, in their minds, accustomed to or become familiar with a certain fee that they have in their minds that is never going to come about. And if that's not managed from the outset, that's going to be very, very, very difficult to overturn throughout the process of the claim. 
And so from memory, I used to sit down with my claimants at the very beginning and I'd always have a whiteboard in the conference room where I'd meet them. And I'd actually put, number one, if we're talking about, let's, let's take a CLA claim, for example, or even a MACA claim. Um, number one, NEL, this is what you may or may not get. Number two, past care and assistance, this is what you might or might not get, so on and so forth. But you know, it's so fundamental to explain to them how that's calculated because they might think, oh, actually, I haven't received care, so I wouldn't get that. Yeah, so that's kind yes, of that's, that's yeah. a way of managing it. That raises the issues too. Yeah. yeah. Number six, we've got gather your medical evidence proactively and choose your experts wisely. I can't stress that latter part enough. <laughs> that's a, look, that's a vexterior for whichever side you're acting. I think mm. both sides are critical of the other sides or a number of the other sides' practitioners, and it's a hard one. That I, I think that's a difficult one to solve. I think. Certainly choosing experts uh, is very important, depending, it depends on the issue you're after, but if mostly we're talking about medical experts mm. and uh, it's a very difficult one. It's hard, it's hard to solve that. I think uh, people should consider it carefully. At the moment, people tend to use the same group of, of doctors most of the time. Mm. It would be nice to see that change probably, but that's a hard one. And even if it's not a, um, a complete change in the expert that you're using, it could be a change in the nature of the service that you're acquiring from that particular expert. You know, I had a claim the other day where I was reading an expert's report and the experts, in essence, repeated the evidence provided by the plaintiff orally and then based his expert opinion on that in a situation where it was open to him to do a slip test and he didn't do that. It was open to him to do lighting tests and he didn't do that. So really, is the expert providing his expertise or is the expert just mm-hmm. becoming an advocate for the claimant and sort of arguably breaching the limit of yeah, the jurisdiction? Yeah, to do that. Yeah, exactly. When negotiating, this is number seven, when negotiating, stay within the range. We talked about estimating damages earlier and, and making an assessment from our point of view. Paul, what's your thought on that in terms of negotiating within that range? Uh, very important from, from the insurer's point of view. We're required to do that and we do that. We give we give a range of damages and there would be, need to be very good reason to go outside of that. So, it's uh, yeah, it's important. And we wouldn't, as an example, I mean, it's not ideal if, if parties are going to negotiate in good faith. It's not ideal for either party to make an offer that's, either below the low range, which is never going to happen, or alternatively, way above the high range, which is never going to happen. So, and that comes from an understanding of, look, what is a judge likely to, or a fact finder likely to find based on the evidence? Is it, what is the high range? What is the low range? And if at most a case is worth $600,000, and I've, I've been in this situation where I get given a schedule of damages at the beginning, and it's like 1.5 mil, that's not really advocating strongly for the claimant and, you know, bettering their case and advancing their case. That's frustrating negotiation process. It certainly is. I, I sometimes wonder whether does a claimant see that number, 1.5 million, and mm. even remotely think that's what the claim might be worth. Mm. Mm. I don't know how that's sold to yeah. the claimant because we see schedules both sides. We see schedules below the low range, schedules above the high range. I think some of them are in response to the, mm. I think a low range schedule can sometimes be in response yeah, to a high range t- schedule. T- t- it's t- difficult. T- but yeah. Also with negotiation, I think it's very important if you're doing settlement conferences to know where your limit is. If you're mm. insurer, you'll almost certainly know that. And if you make a final offer, it's got to be final. I've had a few cases over the years where that's my non-negotiable position. Half an hour later, wasn't, and uh, 
turning to the next uh, your next item there about being polite and not burning bridges. I think our relationships with other practitioners is very, very important. Oh, absolutely. We all have different styles and personalities, different ways of negotiating. Some people like to get to the point straight away. Others like to do it more slowly. But there's a fair amount of respect and that you gain trust from that and you gain, obviously, the longer you've done it, the better you know people and you know different ways of, of course, yeah. dealing with people. But I think it's very important to express your offers carefully, particularly when you're near the end. If you're not quite at the end, don't say it's a final offer. There's other <laughs> exactly. ways of finessing it that are the limit of my instructions is or uh, I can't get any more from my client at the moment, so uh, let's see what we can do. Of course, of course. Yeah. You know, I think with with all of those strategies, if, if they're all implemented by both um, sides, to use the uh, title of um, Joni Mitchell's song, um, <laughs> I think we should have a more cooperative and a more cohesive way of working together, both as claimant representatives and insurer representatives and, and insurers in general and claimants in general. So hopefully this podcast has uh, been educational and hopefully you've enjoyed listening to it. Until next time, Paul, it was a pleasure uh, doing Thanks, our first podcast together. <laughs> we'll find some more interesting songs next time. Certainly. All right. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Proper Lookout podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more information on anything discussed, please contact Peter Hunt at peter.hunt at mccabecurwood.com.au or visit our website to see McCabe Curwood's full team of specialists.